Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Take two. It's Kandashow's okay. Beetle Revolution. One, two, three, four. On iHeartRadio. Beatles Revolution number 54. Uh, welcome home, producer Andrew. Thanks. Nice to have you back. Nice to be back, Ken. Thank you. Uh, you old married man, you. Yeah, Congratulations. I've, been, I've been married for five weeks now. Yeah, about five weeks going on six. So there's a euphemistic expression saying, oh, the honeymoon is over. Is the honeymoon over or are we still rocking here? No, we're we're still rocking, but we're also we've been together for seven years. So, um, I, I if we're if we're talking about cliches, by now we should have had some problems. So, where did you go on vacation? Was uh, España? We went out to España. Um, we went to Barcelona. You were in Barcelona as well. Yeah, Madrid, and then we came home. Excellent, excellent, good times. Refreshed? Did you feel like you got to catch some energy, catch some time away? Um, I, I'm still learning how to do vacation. The problem I think that I have is I don't normally eat more than two meals in a day. Yeah. He's, when a, I'm, he's a skinny malooch, as we would have said. When I'm Brooklyn. on vacation, you know, we're in the cycle of get up and eat, walk around, find a place to eat, walk around, take a nap, get walk. back up, go to dinner, get drinks, go to sleep. And I'm not really conditioned for that type of schedule. So for most of the vacation, I was like full. My stomach hurt a little bit. And you were always tired and needed a nap. Always always needed a nap. I don't know if I was just jet lagged or if it was just months of pressure falling off of me. If you don't realize, sometimes it's the pressure of always having to do something that keeps you going. Yeah. But, but speaking of being an old married man, I do keep getting tired at like 8 p.m. Good man. So. How old are you now? 30. You won't believe how fast suddenly when you bend down to pick up something, you'll make this little noise like aerial escape and you'll go, eh. and and you'll see. So you're like, eh. it's like, oh, and then eventually it's full on old Jewish man going, Oi! <laughs> there's one person who doesn't seem to age ever. And that would be Sir James Paul McCartney, who at 76 is still rocking, playing three hour shows and doing some of the most amazing music ever, which we will get to as well as our special guest. Roseanne Cash in this podcast. She came up and did breakfast with the Beatles with me. And I said, let's stay. Let's do a podcast thing. And she loved it. She's the, Johnny Cash's eldest daughter is the biggest Beatle geek in the world. Loves it. She's covered Beatles songs. She covered I'm Only Sleeping. Um, no Reply. She talks about that as one of the most powerful songs ever that's driven her. Spoiler alert. She said, my entire life, I've been trying to write a song as good as No Reply. And I think I've never gotten there, but I'm going to keep trying. How about them apples? Yeah. But first, before we get to any of this, young Andrew, we're going to do a, a chemistry lesson. Do you remember your high school chemistry? I got a D in chemistry. I it was see. the only D I ever got. Okay. Do you remember the periodic table at all? Do you remember the I thing know the, that hung on the wall? Okay. We're going to discuss a noble metal, uh, atomic number 45, called rhodium. 
R-H-O-D-I-U-M. You've heard of it. It is a rare, silvery white, hard, corrosion-resistant, and chemically inert transition metal. It is a noble metal and a member of the platinum group, and it has only one naturally occurring isotope. Why, you might ask, Ken, are you discussing this noble metal called rhodium? Why? Because on this day in what year? 1980. 1980, Paul McCartney was presented with a rhodium record. (laughs) So I actually met the guy at the Guinness Book of World Records. His name is Philip Robertson. He's a Guinness World Record educator, and he works on Beatles stuff. And he determined that on this date in 1980, Paul McCartney is the most successful songwriter and performer in history. Not of the decade, not of our lifetime, in history. So what do you do? What award do you give him? Do you say the Dodeca Platinum Artist? Do you say 10 times, 10 times gold Grammy? It just gets so cumbersome on the tongue. So I guess they just went to the periodic table and said, what other medals are there? Can we give him a uranium plaque? Right. Might be dangerous. Okay. And we'll, you don't want to go we'll to back off on the atomic number. Right. And you don't want to go to the noble gases. You don't want to say, here, Paul, here's like a vial of helium to honor your it that just seems stupid. Here's some nitrogen. It, no, you'd have to stick in the metal family. And gold don't cut it, silver don't cut it, platinum doesn't cut it. Because he already used it. You've used it. he's got <laughs> he could he could make wallpaper out of the platinum. One wall could be platinum. The second level of the house at Cavendish in London, that could be all gold records. So there's just really what is he gonna do? Stack them? <laughs> or have them on rotating like spindles? No. So they gave him a rhodium-covered disc for this honor for being the most successful singer-songwriter. And what would you say? I mean, I'm sure Paul said, thank you. Hey, it's great. Good stuff. But really, when you bring it home, you show it to your kids, you go like, so they gave me this. (laughs) And, you know, your kids know who you are. And you go, wow, Dad, that's something. You know, when Simon Kirk was here and told us about New Year's Eve at George Harrison's house, when they gave him a solid gold bar from EMI and in celebration of a billion, you know, songs sold. And the whole room, Eric Clapton and Bad Company and Jeff Beck and all the, you know, who and everybody's just sitting there staring at George like a billion. You add up all of our sales, we're not at a billion. And you've got a billion. George just said, well, this will make a nice paperweight. So this is past that. This is more than the gold thing. And you sit there and go, how does a guy like this do you, do you even think in terms of topping yourself? And I don't think he does. When people say, oh, his ego, he's driven by ego. You know, he's got the biggest ego. He's got to keep doing No, do, I'm on the air no. now. It's been 40 years now. Do I do it because of ego or do I do it because I love it? I mean, the fact that people have any nice stories about Paul McCartney at all is incredible because you talk about um, spoiling children Mm-hmm. by by telling by praising them too much and not giving them anything to work for. I I almost don't ever want to meet Paul McCartney because I don't know what I can say to him that he hasn't heard a billion million times. Right. How Nothing. how does a human being even comprehend um the influence and how important he is to people? It's it's unnatural even. I I got not about name dropping or this isn't showing off, but when I I met Paul twice and one time like you know a couple of times like how do you do but a couple of times where we could talk and i said you know it it was done as a sketch as a joke on saturday night live when you're interviewed by the late chris farley right and he laughed he goes yeah i remember i said you know what no matter what we do 
No matter what interview you do from here on to the future and the past, Chris Farley said, remember when you were the Beatles? Wasn't that great? Every interview is simply a version of that question. You can spin it. You can talk about this album. What were you thinking here? What you've done since? I said, everything is some version of, you know, all the stuff you did. Boy, it's great. Thank you. And you, that's really the interview. But I understand why you want to keep going. I was at a party, uh, you know, music biz people, Memorial Day. Somebody said, like, he should just quit. This stuff sounds like crap. I'm like, well, you're 65 years old now. And I said, are you listening to any pop music? No, you're listening to what we grew up with. Yeah. So Paul is trying to make a record, Egypt Station, for what music sounds like on the radio now. Well, why does he care? Because there's no mountains left. When you've climbed K2 35 times, and you've climbed Mount Etna, and you've climbed Mount Everest, and you've climbed the Himalayas, and you've, you've invented mountains to climb, when there's just nothing left to prove, then trying to stay in the game and simply seeing if I can make a pop album that people like, that's the, that's the challenge that's left. But also it's difficult because at his level, you never know what kind of, whether you're getting honest feedback. And also if the feedback that people are giving to you that's positive and, and wholehearted, you don't know if that's just because of who you are. Right, right. So Where's artistically, it? it seems like it's very complicated. So... He's got all the money you could ever want, but he feels like making more music. And and I think ultimately down the road, I wonder how people are going to digest this catalog of his. Right. You know, maybe there's a there's a solo album of Paul McCartney's from the '90s that everybody overlooked, but that ends up being thought of as the standard of his career. Like, can you believe in his in his '50s he made, or in his '60s or his '70s he made this album? Right, and I feel that if my album like that is the album he did with Elvis Costello, Flowers in the Dirt, and it's a gorgeous album, and Elvis had a lot to do with it, just as he's always been reaching out. Everybody said he's trying to find another John. It's not finding another John because he knows he's not going to find another John. What he needs is somebody he can respect, like Denny Lane said about the early days of Wings. He needs somebody to just say, hey, that's good, but what about this? Or... Hey, if you did that here, he loves discussing music with someone of having a band. And Elvis Costello, I think he felt a, you know, sort of grew up in Liverpool, you know, respected his music. He First, he's got to respect your music. And if he respects your music, then when you say, if, if he loved your band, 100,000, and you said to him as a bass player, what if you inverted that and played this? As opposed to being, what, how dare you, kid in this band? He would go... Yeah, let's try it because that's what turns him on is getting a musical idea. I've Yes, I've got every idea. You give me an idea. Let's see what you've got because that's the fun part if you're Paul McCartney. And I totally get that. But, but even collaborating w- would be difficult because you're collaborating with somebody who is influenced by you more than likely. <laughs> exactly. It's a closed circle. It's like You don't know if somebody's loop. just regurgitating your own ideas back at you. And it's, oh, yeah, I like that because I did that on the White Album. It happens when Mark Hudson producing a Ringo album and there was a very psychedelic-y, beatly thing with calliopes and different layers of it. And they asked Paul to come in and play bass on it and sing harmony and sing some parts. And Paul said, hey, it sounds very beatly. 
And Ringo got so angry and he's like apologizing. He goes, I told him it sounds beetly. He didn't listen to me. See, Mark, I told you that's beetly. We can't. And Paul said, no, no, Rich, we were in the Beatles. You were in the Beatles. <laughs> yeah. It's okay that it sounds beetly. Well, I don't want it. No, it's good. He goes, well, we can't do that again. I'm like, why not? It's yours. And he said to was like dead silence. And Mark Hudson tells a story like, no, you're in the Beatles. You could sound beetly. The other people would sound stupid. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I've been doing it. You're allowed. Yeah. You, have the, you have the card that says, I'm allowed to sound like the Beatles. And he said, it really took a minute. For, and Ringo didn't want to do it. Paul had to say, sure it can be. And he's like, all right, if you think. He goes, yeah, no, it's great. I love it. Okay, Paul. But it's almost like he had to sign off on it. Not that he approved, but he had to give him the confidence that he could do it. He, McCartney said when he first did Uncle Albert, Admiral Halsey, and people went, well, it's really beatly with two different sections and a middle eight. And, it, you know, it, it kind of joins together three, four things like he did in the Beatles. And he said, my first thought is, oh, God, yeah, it is. Because it starts with this acoustic song. Yeah. We, Even Live and Let Die is like that. Absolutely, with a, with a change. But he said when he started with Admiral Halsey, I'm like, oh, God, yeah, I'm repeating myself. Like, it's, it's okay, I'm allowed. No, it's a new song, but in a style I like working in. Then when you get to Live and Let Die, I can just do it mm -hmm. and change the whole, and have a crazy off-kilter, you know, orchestral chorus in the middle, da-da-da, and then come right back to a ballad in the middle. And it's fine, goes some Paul, and I can accept that I can do it. And if you think that sounds like the second side of Abbey Road, well, good for you. <laughs> there was a, a great interview with Greg Kirsten, who produced Egypt Station, yeah, um, a few months ago on Rolling Stone. And uh, they asked Greg, of course, you're Paul's producer, what was it like producing him? What was it like making comments on what he was writing? And he said, uh, it was kind of strange, but I know what he really wants from me. I just have to take a breath and say it. Sometimes it might not go over uh, very well, but he was always really cool. So he recalls a couple of times um, when he suggested something that, in his words, might have been challenging. And he said that Paul would basically ignore him. <laughs> I w I'm wondering, did he hear me? Then maybe half an hour would go by and I'd say, hey, Paul, what about that idea I mentioned a little while ago? He said, oh, I heard you. I was just pretending to ignore you. <laughs> we just laugh about it. Then something, some, uh, sometimes two days later, he'd try the idea, and I'd be like, "Wow, okay." Um, and then, then Paul would decide whether he liked it or not. But it, it's <laughs> he, the man is stuck in his ways, and rightly so. I want you to push me, but it doesn't mean it I'm going to move. Feel good, right? But <laughs> I know I want you to. You know, it's almost like a trainer. Like if you yeah. were a world-class bodybuilder and a trainer told you to do something and you just ignored it and you're doing your thing, it doesn't mean he didn't hear you. But you know, as he said once when I've worked with, uh, what was his name, O'Brien? Brendan O'Brien? Yeah, Brendan O'Brien. And he said, you know, he came up with, you know, he just said, I think we should do this. And my first thought was, I've made more records than you ever heard in your entire <laughs> life. And then you get over that little moment and you go, well, why does he want that? He said, I, when somebody says, why not do this or why not do that? What, it doesn't go over well for me, but if you're a musician 
and you play me what you're hearing or you could sing me what you're hearing. Just tell me in musical terms how you hear it. Then I'm much more open to it to hear the music that you're talking about rather than just saying, why don't you back off on that? Or why don't we, why don't we scrap that? You'd be a contributor. I'm paying you. I'm not paying you to sit there. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> oh, okay, Mr. McCartney. Oh, uh, if, you, if I could borrow a guitar, I'll try to play it for you. <laughs> it's, a, it's a tough one. Um, I have to bring him here for a podcast. Russ Tideman, who's produced Eric Clapton, who's produced James Taylor and Art Garfunkel and Randy Newman, and done so many of the Clapton live albums, and he did a George Harrison album. And I asked him once, when you're working with people of this caliber, of this fame, not even caliber of artists, because there are a lot of amazing caliber artists who aren't well-known, but people who are household names around the world, how do you tell them, I don't like that? <laughs> and he smiled and he said, well, you never say you don't like it. Because I might not like it now. What I say is, it doesn't sound finished to me. Or I'll say, I think it needs another pass. I, there are elements of it that I think are well done. Would you mind terribly taking it back to the shed and working on it for a while? And let's work on this other one. I think this other one's further along. I said, and what if they push back? And he, and he smiled and said, ah. He goes, that's where you have to have your credibility of saying, I produce Clapton, I produce James Taylor, I produce these people, so that when he said, well, George Harrison said, well, I like the song. And I said, well, I think I'm going to like it too, but where it is right now, it, it doesn't feel as complete as so many of your other works. He said, in the end, this is your album, but you're paying me not to come up with right choruses and things or come up with arrangements. You're really paying me for my opinion. That's why I'm producing you. You're George Harrison. There's nothing I can do you haven't created already. You're paying me for your, my opinion, and that's my opinion of this one piece right now. And George said, okay. And he took it as such. He said, never lie. I never lie to somebody. Tell them, oh, this is great. It's the best thing I ever heard. Maybe we can do it. He goes, it feels so sleazy and cheesy. Mm -hmm. I'm just honest, but you're not, you don't be nasty or cynical about it. Because nobody needs that. There's plenty of that in the world. And I thought, you know what? That's a very healthy working relationship for artist and producer. Yeah, and you can understand why Paul McCartney and even George Harrison wanted to work with people who were not rock musicians or who not really pop stars. Like Kanye West, you're, a few years ago, it wasn't yesterday. Right, right. <laughs> um, you're not coming from the same place. You're trying to see what else there is. You're you're looking for other territory to mind. What if I can plant some seeds? I've never planted these seeds or these trees in this area. Let me see if I can grow something here. Let me see if there's something that works. And the thing about when you've made music this ubiquitous, see rhodium plated award, um, it influences every twist and turn of music from jazz to classical to urban to Hawaiian to country music. And our guest this week, as I said, biggest Beatle fan, as big as anybody listening or anybody we know, Roseanne Cash, Johnny's eldest daughter, who said, again, spoiler alert, I didn't become a musician going to music because my dad went into it because of the Beatles. And when you think about being the daughter of someone as famous as Johnny Cash, think about James McCartney made an album a few years back. Danny Harrison works on music. Julian Lennon made a gorgeous album of a lot, and all anybody said was, damn, he sounds just like his dad. Yeah. Well, you know, yeah, he does. I mean, it's not like he's imitating, he, he, he's imitating his dad. No, he, 
it's his father. It's even uh, even Ben Taylor, James Taylor's son, yeah. has a couple of really good albums. He is also tall and gangly, and he sounds like James Taylor. Yeah, he that really, doesn't mean he's not good. Some kids do outshine their dads mm-hmm. in a in a sport. Steph Curry, Steph Curry, for and sure. Del Curry. You know, it can happen, but. It's that's the outlier. Or the kid is a bigger star than his dad, who was a star. You know, for Roseanne, at least she wasn't a a guy writing drinking. I I shot him and I went to prison. Songs. Mm-hmm. The worst I've ever seen. I met the guy once. May he rest in peace, Frank Sinatra Jr. Mm. Andrew, you've never met a man who looked like he was carrying a thousand pounds on his back every minute, every second that you saw him. Right. And you know, he had one song. He had a hit, and. After that, you know, for the last 20 years, he was dad's music director. And that's what you do. And I just thought, man, did he ever have it? He should have done anything but music. He should have painted. He should have gone into accounting. But just nobody was ever going to, man, your dad is something. Mm -hmm. Yep. It's one of the interesting things about Danny Harrison because he really didn't get into music until I think like his mid thirties. He was playing like the whole time, but he he went off and had a successful career as like an an auto designer. Like he's got like a degree in physics or something. Um, and then he was like, no, I want to do music. Yeah, and tour for a few yeah. years. And good for him, and yeah. you know, just to enjoy it and not have. Because the one thing about these kids is I don't feel like they're pushing for stardom. They're just making music, and their expectations are realistic. Mm-hmm. You know, Julian Lennon had to walk away from it. He said, I just, you know, I did it. I don't want to do it anymore. It's just too much weight. I'm doing photography. I'm still writing. I'm writing poetry and novels, but I'm not I'm not going to stay on stage and play anymore. To that end, I want you guys to hear about Roseanne Cash and her story and her love for the Beatles here on Ken Dash House Beatles Revolution. In the studio with me, somebody I have wanted to meet for so much of my life because I've been a fan for the better part of my life. Roseanne Cash, welcome to Q104.3. Thank you. That's nice to hear. You Listen, you're somebody who comes from music royalty, as we've talked about so much with Julian Lennon and James McCartney put out an album. But when your dad is this iconic figure to not just do okay, but go into music, but just to shine and have so many hit albums and develop your own following to be yourself. I think in some ways it's a double-edged sword, isn't it? Like to start out like that? Uh, You know, I think it would have been harder if I had been a man because it would have been, people would have defaulted to making comparisons more than they did with me. But, you know, he still casts a very long shadow and it, it did take some work to carve out my own space. But, and I may have pushed away longer than I had to, but... Uh, <laughs> but you had to, you know, yeah, in your mind you, you had to. As any kid does, and particularly in your late teens and 20s when you want to find out who you are, it's, it's normal. For me, I've been doing this for a long time, and my first job, I started in country, just trying to get a job in radio anywhere. Um, 19 years old at a little station in Newton, New Jersey, in the middle of nowhere. Mm. And I don't know country music from a hole in the wall. Outside of your dad and Foggy Mountain Breakdown, that's it. And in the 70s, it was that weird time of the, you know, the glitter and the, the bad turquoise jewelry and the beards. And, you know, everybody kind of had that jivey. We did as well, the jivey delivery mm-hmm. of Barbara Mandrell, still sleeping single in that double bed. I can't believe that. She's so pretty. It's just, <laughs> oh, listen to those tapes. And it's just no idea what I'm doing. But to me, like your songwriting, you were on the forefront of 
turning what was country music, kind of dragging it into, for lack of a better word, singer-songwriter, Americana, mm-hmm. of not just writing the forms, which you knew cold, but trying to come up with Anana's voice and singing real songs. Well, you know, I didn't grow up in the South, and I didn't grow up on a farm and have all of those iconic, quote, country experiences. I grew up in Southern California listening to the Beatles, listening to Spencer Davis, listening to Traffic and Jackson Brown and the Birds and Flying Burrito Brothers and Linda (laughs) Ronstadt and Joni Mitchell. So all of that was going in, even though I heard country music as a kid, you know, it went in by osmosis. But when I wanted to listen what I wanted to listen. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. Laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, overprohibited by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The two, there were all those great bands and. Joni Mitchell was such a huge influence because it was the first time I realized that a woman could be a songwriter. Wow. You know, it just seemed like a a boys club, and I didn't even think about it until her. And to write such intimate songs about how you're really hard. Every every Joni album is just me sitting at a table with her telling me her story. And it's just, you almost feel embarrassed at the honesty that she shares about her feelings. And yet for a young woman, I felt for the first time that it was a legitimate thing to do, to write about your life and your feelings and put it out in a public sphere. That was just unheard of. (laughs) By the way, uh, Roseanne is here because she is being honored at the 38th annual John Lennon Tribute Show. Symphony Space, Broadway 95th, Friday, November 30th, and you're getting the John Lennon Real Love Award. And if you ask, what is the connection between Roseanne Cash and the Beatles, may I bring up that you were president of the Beatles fan club as a young girl. (laughs) I was. And that is all anybody listening needs to know. (laughs) (laughs) I created the Beatles fan club. Awesome. I I think I was 11. I bow to you. (laughs) I bow to you. (laughs) You know, and you had to, in the fan club, I remember you had to write down who your favorite Beatle was and why, you know, it was was a little loosely organized as a preteen. But who is, so who is your favorite Beatle? Um, then Paul, and then I grew into John. It was John. It was, it was always John. I still think, I still sometimes think, what would John do? All the time. When, yeah. I always get asked that, like, what would John Lennon write if he was alive today? Like, he wrote it already. Yeah. Well, <laughs> the, what I think about is avoiding sentimentality in songwriting and truth speaking and not being afraid of really raw subjects. So sometimes when I'm songwriting, I think, what would he do? No, that song, that line is too sweet. John wouldn't write that. <laughs> Brilliant. Roseanne Cash is Although double me. fantasy. There was some sweetness there, I have to admit. Yeah. I just think it was so funny that he would rip Paul about being sentimental and the, you know, the classic songwriter. And then at the end, John writes Beautiful Boy. It's and true. Paul's going, Yeah, see? See? Hey, see? Yeah. I was right. That's yeah. right. I, I they always ask which one's the genius. And I've always tried to explain it and you tell me what you think. I always thought of it as two guys holding a rope. It was mm-hmm. the tension in the rope, one guy on each end. 
that's what made these songs, as Paul always said, you know, it's getting better all the time. And he says, couldn't get much worse. Yeah. He said, I would never have thought of that line. Yeah, I think that's a great way to explain it. And that the sum was greater than the parts because of that, that the chemical reaction between those two as songwriters, that just, it will never be repeated. It's amazing. What, do you remember the first time that you saw the Beatles? Was Did you hear them on record or was it Ed Sullivan? No, I, I heard it on record and it was, I want to hold your hand. Let's see, what would I have been? Eight, maybe eight years old. And I was riding in the car with my best friend, whose name was Gretchen, this moment is seared of into course my it is. mind. I was going to say, no doubt you remember it. And her teenage sister was driving the car, and Gretchen and I were sitting in the back seat. And I Want to Hold Your Hand came on the radio, and the girl driving turned it up really loud. And Gretchen wasn't paying attention. She was still jabbering in my ear. <laughs> and the whole world went into this laser focus of that radio and that song. I couldn't hear what Gretchen was saying. And all I could think after the song was over is, how do I find that again on the radio? Wow. And I felt so shy around the teenage girl that I was afraid to ask her, how do you turn the dial to find that on the radio? Isn't it amazing how, listen, there's always been great songs and great songwriters. And there was Elvis. And these guys I wasn't just a come. huge Elvis fan then. No. My sister and I had fights. She was Elvis, I was the Beatles, and we would not <laughs> give up our territory. Okay, so I have to ask your dad, this icon of American music, what did he think of the Beatles? He got their autograph for me. Oh. Me and my sister. It was so sweet. John, well done. Well I think done, sir. It was in San Francisco. I think it was Candlestick Park, maybe. And um he came home with he knew how much we loved the Beatles, me and my sister, Kathy. And he brought home two separate photographs signed by each of them. And the first one said, to Roseanne and Kathy, love from Beatles. And then they each signed it. And the second one said, to Cindy and Tara, my younger sisters, love from Beatles. And they each signed it. I still have mine framed, oh, hanging. Of course, thank God you still of have it. Of course ever, I do. Don't ever lose that. Are you but... kidding? No way. <laughs> Roseanne Cash is my guest. It, it's funny. Greatness knows greatness to me. You know, they loved your dad. Oh, he loved them. Really? He heard the songs. Oh, you know, my dad listened to everything from metal to bluegrass. He was ec ecumenical in his listening <laughs> taste. And of course, the Beatles would make an imprint. You know, that for myself, people say, do you like country music? Do you like jazz? I like great music. Ditto. I don't care if it was listened in the 1600s or it's written this morning. Is, does it move me? Do I feel it? Then right. it's it's great music. It's what it's. Right. I feel the same way. Yeah. And, you know, here they come in and just shake us out of the doldrums of post JFK assassination America, and it's black and white. And these guys come so happy and fun and mop tops. And we learn to laugh again, and we learn to dance again somehow. And the thing that always amazed me is they're the biggest band in the world, selling the most records, touring, making more money than anybody's ever made. Elvis is playing rodeos. They're at Chase Stadium, and they fire that band. They just throw them away, and we start over in Rubber Soul and Revolver yeah. Land, and we start writing what you talked about, about you know a, a hit pop band would never write Norwegian wood. Right. They fire that band. That's a great way to put it. My friend Ethan Russell, photographer who was on the roof when Let It Be was filmed. Okay. He has these great photos of um, the Let It Be sessions, you know, and you see it in the photo, see it, things falling 
part then. Yeah. But um, the going back, the transition from what they were doing into the White Album, say, you could have never predicted that. Right. I remember 13 years old when the White Album came out, I had asked for it for Christmas. And I walked into the living room on Christmas morning and under the tree were all of these nice presents for me and the White Album. And I just walked straight to the White Album. I picked it up. up. I didn't look at anything else. I walked back to my bedroom. I locked the door for the rest of the day. Of course you did. (laughs) That's why I My mother was like, what about all this? I was like, I don't care. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I I need a few hours here. Yeah. I, I love your music. I love you as an artist. Now I love you even more as a person because we're <laughs> both geeks about great music. Roseanne Cash with me. She's the recipient of the 2018 John Lennon Real Love Award happening at Symphony Space Friday, November 30th. Get your tickets at lennontribute.org. So I got to hear this sneak listening party a couple of weeks ago. Giles Martin remastered the White Album. Oh, wow. And it's amazing. Wow. Basically, he just took the compression off it. He cleaned up everything. He, as opposed to, you know, sort of polishing it and making it what he did with Sgt. Peppers and making it cleaner and brighter. This just, he just stripped away everything and it's just them sitting in a room yeah, and singing to you. And I tell you, John Lennon singing Julia, when you hear it naked. Oh, oh I can't even bear oh, to think about it. it Roseanne, it's like heartbreaking. the most heartbreaking songs that you've written. There's so many, I don't even know where to begin. I, uh, yeah. He starts the first take, he says, this is a tough one to sing. Oh, my and God. And I, I go into a fetal position and oh. like, oh. God, oh. Think, talk about how brave that was. He, just to lay yourself oh. bare to write a song like that. You know, um, John, my husband, and I went to his house in Liverpool this house where he lived where as a child. Yeah. yeah, where he grew up. Got pictures in front of that. That was so moving. Did you go in? Yeah, Isn't we it? did. I, I did it a few years back. Did you go to his bedroom? Yeah. Oh, I was just chills. Tiny chills. room too, right? Chills. Me too. I, got, I was in tears. It was so beautiful. Yeah, you know, as he, Paul always explained the window seat where they could both sit because it was a small room. But he said, because I was lefty, he's writing. So we could so face worked. each other. And we weren't clashing the necks of the guitars. So we could, and like, you don't think about it, but just the physicalness, the physical. you could sit in a small space because you're not bumping into each other. And playing. how well they could hear each other. Paul's house was large compared to John's. Did you go over there? Yeah, I saw that. That yeah. was, you just feel the magic of these two kids. The the odds of the exact same one person who needs the other, you know, the perfect yeah. pot with the perfect lid. Soulmates then. Yeah. You know, I mean, I don't know that that's happened that much in the history of, art that these two people that that kind of combustion would take place that would just set the universe on fire (laughs) and change the rest of us i mean i even though my dad was who he was i don't think without the beatles that i would do what i do today really because right because as a songwriter after i got this this uh, encouragement from seeing that so- women could be songwriters. I re-examined the Beatles songs and broke them down. Why do, why do these work, you know? What does the middle eight serve in a song? And when do you go back to the chorus? And how tight are these rhyme schemes? And then noticing when the songs didn't follow the form, like no reply doesn't follow that form of with the standard choruses. You know, it's a little unusual. Right. And I studied them like they were, you know, the uh, Dead Sea Scrolls. (laughs) (laughs) 
Roseanne, I can't tell you how many accomplished musicians have sat where you're sitting and have told me that exact same story. Is that story. right? I'm not surprised. Randy Bachman with, with all these hits with BTO and the Guess Who. And he said, anytime I get interviewed, and they say, did you ever have any formal music training? And he said, oh, yes, I bought Beatle records. And he said, you'd sit there with your Absolutely. guitar and some iced tea and a notepad and try to figure it out and just go over. with it. You said he's trying to explain about records that you could take the tone arm and just go over it and over it yep. and try to play it. And he said, I just, it was like taking apart a clock and trying to figure out how the wheels turn yeah. like that. Some of them I skipped over. You know, Mr. Moonlight was never <laughs> one of my favorites, yeah. but my husband and I have had arguments about this. Because he loves Mr. Moonlight. So, so I do I. I mean, it's a cover, but it's it's yeah. so out of out of whack to it's, have that organ. It seemed out of place to me, and it bothered my, as a kid, you know, it just bothered my whole concept of continuity, I guess. But as you said, they, they blew so many songs begin with the first phrase, like that first bar is a hook that you'll never forget. It happened once da, da, da. Yeah. And then this song starts off with, it happened once, and just yells at you of like, and that, that anger of the chord, I nearly died. You know, yeah, that. that is a primal cry in that song. You know, I wrote an essay about No Reply. Uh, that's where I was going. Would you, yeah. would you talk about it a little bit? Well, uh, Andrew Blauner was editing this book of essays about Beatles songs and getting musicians and others, you know, like uh, Ross Chast, who's a cartoonist, right. she wrote an essay too, uh, to write about not necessarily their favorite Beatles song because that's kind of a cheap, you know, <laughs> right. what is your favorite song? Come on, give me a break. Right. Um, but about a song that meant a lot to them. So I wrote about No Reply and about, as a kid listening to that song, Becoming aware of lust and breakups <laughs> mm -hmm. and obsession. Like you stand at her door and you look through the window and you see her and she lied about being there. And, you know, this whole story uh, unfolds with all of this background that you fill in in that song. And it was disturbing to me as a kid. Like the grownups feel these things and act like this and... You know, it was so intense. And I, so this is what I wrote about in the essay, but I also wrote about a song I wrote much, much later in 1990 called Paralyzed. Yeah. And it was about overhearing my parents, a phone call my parents had with each other where I realized my parents were going to break up. And I thought about no reply. And I just talked about in the essay that in some way, I've always been reaching for no reply in so many songs I write. Wow. Thank you so much for sharing that. Yeah. Roseanne Cash, my guest in the studio here at Q104.3, getting the John Lennon Real Love Award at the uh, tribute to John Lennon, 38th annual tribute, Friday, November 30th at uh, Symphony Space. You've got so many hit albums and so many top 10, top 40 I just think it's cooler than anything that you live in New York now, that you're a New Yorker. <laughs> we have this idea. Every New Yorker ran down to Nashville to try to be a Nashville cat. <laughs> yeah. In the last 20 years, everybody went, oh, I'm going to Nashville. Yeah. You've been living here and writing, which I think is cooler than anything. So what's new for you? What's on the well, horizon? Well, like you said, I've been in New York for since 91. So what is it? 20? It's a long time. Almost what 28 years. Yeah. Do you um, consider yourself a New Yorker? I always did, even before I moved here. No kidding. Yeah. 
You know that saying, we always thought she was kind of weird. Turns out she's just a New Yorker. (laughs) (laughs) That was me. I knew it from the time I was 12. uh, I'll never forget that. That's great. Yeah. My dad, when I was 14, he brought me to New York. I think it was my second time to New York. I was 14. And he took me to this um, shop on Bleecker Street called The Stitching Horse. And it was, you know, still kind of a hippie era. And they hand-stitched leather and suede jackets. Right. So you'd go in and get, you pick out your suede or your leather and they would fit you. So my dad had this green suede, knee-length, hand-stitched jacket made for me on Bleecker Street. And I stood there looking in the mirror, wearing that green jacket. And You're I, how old? You're 12? I'm 14. 14. And I look out at Bleecker Street, and I look back at myself in the mirror, and I said, this is my town. I belong here. <laughs> and I still have the jacket. Awesome. <laughs> I'll tell you my, if you don't mind sharing, if I may share my moment of seeing your dad here in New York. Uh-huh. Um, he was, you know, he loved the city so much. Did he really? He had an apartment on Central Park South for quite some time. No kidding. Yeah. That's amazing. Because I... I didn't know how he felt about it. They he they played the Ritz mm-hmm. and with June and with John yeah. and, and he he walks out on set and I, every band I ever saw from the eighties just it started at the Ritz from U two to the Sex Pistols everything started like sort of on that little club on Eleventh Street and grew from there into worldwide fame. There was such a an essence of it and you know it's Johnny Cash and the Cash family and your dad walks out on stage that same opening hello. I'm Johnny Cash. And the place erupts. The roof comes off. And he, to hide a smile, he turns away. He turns <laughs> upstage to hide his smile before he can go into walk the line. <laughs> and he hides it. Place goes crazy. He's got to quiet us down. And June says, so himself here, we were here to see our son-in-law at the time, Nick Lowe. And I said, you know, Daddy, we could play here. And he said, no, this is a rock town. They don't want to hear our thing. And he said, and I said, no, it's a music town. And she said, well, John, and he just shrugged his shoulders and went on with the rest of the show. He, it was adored because it was, it's a, it's not a country town. It's a rock town. This is a music town. No, that's the truth. Always has been. If it's good, they'll take it. If it's bad, they'll let you know. Yeah, tough crowds. I've always been, like you said, from the Beatles on, from Dylan, I've always been into storytelling Mm -hmm. and people who tell me me a story. And if that's not the essence of Tom Petty, so you want to call Tom Petty a country artist? Call him, be my guest. Well, Southern Accents, that album, Petty's album, Southern Accents, I thought that was such a beautiful country album. Totally. I sent that album to my dad. Did you? And he ended up recording the song Southern Accents. Last Dance for Mary Jane yeah, is one of beautiful. the great short stories I've ever heard. And, and he said, I got that from Lennon. You could stretch anything. It won't yeah. break. It's yours. You could stretch it like dough. And I always think about there's that line in that song where he says, I really dig you, baby, but I got to keep moving on. Keep, keep moving on. Who nobody else would have. It's you know, sort of like train of thought as you're singing along. And I worship people who have the confidence. You've done it, and the people who tell stories. Warren Zevon, Bob, the people who tell a story. You know, you know, and John did it as good as anyone. And even Paul in a tight format. Who else would write Eleanor Rigby? You know, I know, beautiful. Puts on right? a face she wears in a jar by the door. Like that just stops you cold. Well, the thing about John too is that his storytelling 
could be more obtuse. And Rye, his wryness, you know, entered yeah. into a lot of his storytelling, whereas Paul's not so much that particular edge. But um, a lot of times you felt John's story even when he didn't spell it out, you know? The, the great songwriters, and I'm yourself included, what you don't say. is just as important. Yeah, but we the listener fill in the gaps. Well, I, the negative space is just as important as what you fill in. A lot of young bands, and they, I said, I listen to everything because I feel like it's, it's what I should do and pass along. They always, well, what do you think? And I always say, you just, you're saying everything that you're thinking. Think about, let me fill in some of the gaps. Like right. a great movie doesn't show you everything. You can put it together. The woman leaves the house. You know what happened. You you can fill in uh, paintings those gaps. as well. You know you bring. That's why I hesitate a lot of times to interpret that when people ask me what a song quote means. <laughs> you know I hesitate to fill that in because yeah. it, it means something to me and yeah, different to the different, other person. Very different. I remember one when I wrote the uh, the songs on Black Cadillac. There was this one song I wrote with John. I wrote the lyrics and he wrote the music called House on the Lake. And Black Cadillac was about death and mourning because everybody in my family had died in a two-year period. And um, the House on the Lake was so specific. It described the room, the bedroom, the wooden nails. But then the wooden nails was a metaphor for, you know, everything has fallen apart. It's aging. It's burnt. Right. And... I was so nervous about singing that song live because I felt it was too specific to me. The first time I did it live, this guy came up to me after the show and he said, you know, everybody's got their house on the lake. Mm. Oh, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> I love classical music and I go for the same thing, not to be seen, but what I feel emotionally. Yeah, me too. That you you feel the, the pain, you know, of uh, Chopin who's, who's dying of consumption in Spain, these lonely, sad little fugues, and it just breaks your heart. You know, after uh, 9-11, the Christmas after 9-11, um, the British proms on the radio, they yeah. played Barbara's Adagio for Strings, which right. is one of the saddest pieces of music ever written. And it finally all came out for me. I just sat in the kitchen and cried and cried and cried. And that's what music can do for you, you yeah. know? I think it's why we fell in love with the Beatles. That at first, as a teenager, like my wife, they're so cute. I said to my sister, her older sister, she said, do all boys look like that? <laughs> she said, not right, not exactly like that. And the energy and humor and youth right. and confidence. Right, and then you take us on this journey throughout, yeah. and that's what you've done in your songwriting too. I can't think of anyone who deserves this more. Uh, the recipient, the 2018 John Lennon Real Love Award at the 38th annual John Lennon Tribute Show, uh, Symphony Space. It's happening November 30th. Get your tickets at lennontribute.org. John juxtaposed. He he loved it. He hated it. He hated this person. He loved them. And given the day, he would say either, you know, in what mood he was in. And right at the height of him doing those, the Playboy interviews and let them go chase the rolling wings. I don't need any of that. I hate that stuff. Uh, and Elton John did an interview back with Scott Muni. I had worked at mm -hmm. NEW. And he said, so, tell us. What are you doing? He goes, I'm just hanging out with John Lennon. He said, yeah, he seems pretty angry about the Beatle days. And on the air, he just gives it up and says, yeah, yeah, he hates it. He hates it. He took me into his room, into his closet, 
where he has saved every piece of clothing. Showed me the Sergeant Pepper outfit, showed me the brown jacket, showed me every guitar string, his handwritten lyrics, and said to me, I I don't have the lunchboxes. If you ever go to one of these conventions, if you can get me a lunchbox. Oh, my God. And I said, you want me to go to a convention? He goes, well, somebody's got to get it. And I'll I send thought, Elton. Yeah, I'll send my, I'll, you're here, go get me some lunchbox because I don't have those. And I'm too embarrassed to call the office oh and go, God, I need the lunchbox. That's boxes. so sweet. If that doesn't sum up, I hate it, but I built it. I so. hate it, but I built it. And there's some <laughs> something about a little boy in that too. That's oh God, very yeah. sweet. Oh, I cannot thank you enough for your time, oh, Roseanne Cash. My pleasure. Thank you. Come back anytime. Let's talk Beatles. Let's talk music. Play live. Play some live Beatles. When You know what? The next time we do live breakfast with the Beatles, if in, you're in New York, I'm going to beg, cajole, dinner, anywhere. Come play for us. Thank you so much for having me. It's such a pleasure and honor to sit here and talk about the Beatles. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.